Every day, cardiologists make decisions about what is the most appropriate test, therapy, or procedure for their patients. And when they make those decisions, they are guided by years, sometimes decades worth of research into what's the best course of action. Or at least we hope they do. But then COVID came along. And the more we learned about how the virus wreaked havoc on the cardiovascular system, many of us started to wonder, have the rules of the game changed? Do we need to test patients more frequently? And if so, which ones? How do we treat the cardiovascular symptom of long COVID? Do we risk a sharp upturn in unnecessary tests and procedures? And so on. In short, has COVID changed what is considered appropriate use in the field? Welcome to the Leading Causes podcast. I'm Dr. Fernando Villasian, Senior Medical Director of Cardiology at New Century Health. With me to discuss this important topic are two cardiologists who are not only treating individuals, but also reviewing clinical guidelines in response to COVID and developing new policies in their hospitals. Dr. Nihar Desai, Associate Professor of Medicine and Associate Chief of the Section of Cardiovascular Medicine at Yale University School of Medicine and Medical Director for Value Innovation at the Yale New Haven Health System and Dr. Ileana Pina, clinical professor at Central Michigan University. I've engaged Dr. Pina and Dr. Desai on, on so many questions around what's the best treatment for cardiovascular care. I'm really excited for this discussion, so let's kick it off. Let's start with the science. What have we learned since the start of the pandemic about the ways in which COVID affects the cardiovascular system? Is it different from other viruses? Well, I can um, start this off. I think when we started to hear about COVID, we saw a lot of pulmonary uh, problems, including wide out of the lungs, what looked like ARDS. I think we've realized that it attacks the endothelium, wherever the endothelium happens to be. And there have been cases of acute myocarditis, and it is thrombotic. Um, so obviously, thrombosis can manifest itself in many, many ways in, in the cardiovascular tree. So in this sense, it is different. Uh, we've, we've grown accustomed to the flu virus, and the flu virus really does attack primarily the lungs, um, and on occasion will attack um, the myocardium, and I've taken care of patients with myocarditis due to either influenza A or influenza B. Nihar? Yeah, Ileana, I think I think you summarized it well, and I think you know Fernando. Thanks for having us. Um, you, we've certainly learned a lot in the last you know sixteen months um, ab about coronavirus and, and COVID nineteen, and you know just like Ileana was saying that what initially was recognized as a primary pulmonary process, we've now recognized, and I think too too often and and very sadly sometimes. Uh, all the other manifestations of severe coronavirus infection that, you know, can affect the cardiovascular system in, in many different ways, um, including that prothrombotic milieu that Ileana was talking about, um, you know, whether that be strokes or pulmonary emboli, all the way through to, you know, thrombotic occlusion of a coronary artery. And you can also get, you know, myocarditis. I think there's a lot of interest and concern about whether there will be long-term manifestations or complications of coronavirus infection. Um, there have certainly been imaging studies that have suggested the presence of virus and ongoing inflammation in the myocardium 
that can persist weeks or months out from the sort of acute infectious period, if you will, um, and whether that will lead to you know, adverse remodeling and systolic dysfunction down the road uh, remains to be seen. So I, I think there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of uncertainty, of course, about what the impacts of COVID will be um, on the cardiovascular system, especially in the longer term. Uh, but, but, but we're hopeful that, you know, every day we're sort of learning more, um, that the vaccines are getting, you know, distributed and disseminated. Uh, I think there's some work, you know, for us to do obviously on that side, but, but, but collectively, I think we're obviously in a very different place now than we were, you know, April, May, June of, of 2020. Let's talk about the initial fears of COVID impacts. Which ones have been realized and which ones have been overblown? I'm not sure. It's such a strange virus. I'm not sure that anything has been overblown because what I, what I think we don't understand is what patient gets affected with what. The, the virus looks different in, in everybody. So what is it? Is it risk factors that are underlying We've heard a lot about obesity being a risk factor, which makes you wonder what's the virus doing in the abdominal fat, because that's uh, probably the place where uh, things like angiotensin II um, are working um, and, and cause hypertension, et cetera. So I think that who, who is the likely candidate has been uh, difficult. Um, probably older patients, we think the younger ones are less affected, but now we're seeing young people getting the Delta variant. So, it, you know, it's it's a system in learning. I think we're learning every day. Yeah, Ileana, I, th- I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, I wouldn't say that very much of anything has been overblown here. I mean, I think um, the public health professionals, the, the health professionals that have been, you know, out there and kind of you know, giving us their best sense of, you know, what to do, uh, said very early on, this looked like a once in a generation type, you know, pandemic. Um, and, and I think maybe it's been a hundred years since we've seen something like this. And, um, you know, I, again, I, I think collectively we're in a very different place now than, than we were early on. Um, and, and, and much of the fear, um, I think, you know, there, there is some misplaced, I think, fear about, um, you know, about, about vaccines and, and other things, you know, like that. I think everything that we've seen thus far is the vaccines have really been a, an achievement of modern, you know, medical science. Um, and, and if you listen and kind of look back at the story of the development of these vaccines, it's truly remarkable, uh, the kinds of partnerships and the scientific work that was done uh, and the accelerated timeline. On, on which we got a vaccine. Um, and I think without question, um, that has had an absolutely positive impact. I think on the flip side of that, what we also saw during COVID was what I think all of us knew, but was underneath the surface. And that was about the disparities that exist in our society, in the healthcare system, the differences in care and outcomes um, many of which actually stem from differences in, you know, socioeconomic status and, and access and trust and, you know, education and, and everything that kind of all travels together too often. But uh, I, I think that has demonstrated to us once again that, that there's a lot of work for us to do um, and that addressing healthcare care disparities is integral 
to you know addressing COVID, to getting the public health that we all want, to getting the kind of health care that we want, and getting the kind of outcomes that we want, you know, for for all of our communities and um, and all of our fellow citizens. And I'll tell you something that uh, you know I have expressed to Fernando before that worries me for years in transplant programs. We have seen, you know, the 16, the 17, the 18-year-old that come in with dilated cardiomyopathies, some of whom we have transplanted, some of whom get better, and everybody says, oh, the virus attacked the heart. Well, the virus didn't attack the heart yesterday. The heart didn't get so remodeled overnight. And so we have probably had, you know, some viruses that have attacked the heart through time, maybe Coxsackie A, Coxsackie B. Uh, but what worries me is that those individuals had no symptoms until something tipped them over. So what is the prevalence of this underlying uh, asymptomatic myocarditis? And, and you and I know, Nihar, that the cardiovascular system has just a wonderful way to compensate. Uh, and the compensation happens slowly where patients may not even realize, they may not even notice and maybe some of these long haulers who are still fatigued or tired, there's something there that we need to look at in these hearts much more carefully than we did in the past since we've gotten so much better at doing this in echocardiography, for example. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a great point, Ileana. And I know, you know that we're, um, there, there's certainly a lot for us to talk about. And I think this is another instance where you know, the, the, the lack of a truly national response, I think, has, has impeded us, that, that we've gotten off to a very slow start. Um, that said, I think you know, we are now in a position where if we are thoughtful and methodical and rigorous in the way that we follow patients um, you know, after recovery, then you know, we'll be able to get our arms around this to figure out you know, who, who is persistently at risk what types of interventions might we be able to institute to try and mitigate that risk? Um, but I think your point about that and kind of the historical perspective on, you know, these viral or, you know, idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathies and, you know, whether they were related to a, a latent infection, you know, maybe months, if not years ago, um, I think is a very important point and, and something that we have to be very vigilant about. And I think, you know, hopefully many places institutions, I know even NHLBI and others now, are coordinating and creating a surveillance type system um, to try and get our arms around this so that, um, so, so that we can kind of get a handle on it. That leads me to my next question, which is, how do you think the pandemic may affect what is considered appropriate utilization in different scenarios? You've touched on several of those. Can you expand a little more on this? I think we're going to learn as we come out of this who are the patients that we need to really watch? Um, I worry again about the ones that have appeared to be getting better and have have you know surpassed the the early periods of the disease and look okay. So I worry a lot about the, those patients, and that may be one of the scenarios that we we may want to think about in people who have already had it. You know, well proven. You know. Uh, uh, confirmed on a, on a lab test that they, in fact, have had COVID and how to follow them and then having a second group, those long haulers who still are not okay. Um, and what? how do we follow those? So I think we're going to learn a lot, but this, this is new territory. Yeah, Ileana, I think, 
you know, there, there's so much uncertainty about, you know, what to do. And I think the inclination in that type of setting is always maybe to do more or to do everything. Um, but I, I think we have to be careful and vigilant about that as well. Um, there, there has to be a rational, you know, approach for, you know, surveillance testing. And, and I think you're right that hopefully, just like we learned early on in the pandemic of what different institutions were doing, and we were getting early signs of, hey, you know, th- these treatments seem to be beneficial. And then, of course, that led to larger studies and better studies. And we finally came to a consensus around, you know, what was the right way to manage these patients and what sorts of, you know, anti-inflammatory therapies or anticoagulant therapies, or what was the best ventilator strategy, um, you know, all the way on down the road, just like we learned that, you know, through the course of this, I think that we have to keep up that level of scientific inquiry and rigor at this stage of the pandemic and figure out, well, you know, who, who needs ongoing testing? And, and I think you're right that, you know, in some ways we've, we've always done this. And I think the best clinicians do this, you know, every day. But, but given how much ambiguity and uncertainty there is, I, I think it's really important for, you know, provider groups, especially societies and payers and other groups to actually come together and try and develop some kind of practical and pragmatic clinical pathways that offer a sensible way to move us forward. And I think a, a really good example um, of this is, for example, around cardiac MRI. I mean, we know that you know, certain patients, for example, those that have had persistent biomarker elevations or that have symptoms or that had a drop in their ejection fraction might benefit from having a better look at their heart function and looking for the presence of inflammation in the heart with a cardiac MRI. But other patients may not require that. If they didn't really have cardiovascular symptoms, they didn't have elevations in other blood markers or blood tests that might make you concerned about that, maybe they don't need to have ongoing surveillance testing. And so I think your point's a really important one that we're, we're going to learn more. And I think what we ought to do is to continue to disseminate information. And the more consensus, you know, best practices or care pathways we can develop, I think we'll be able to kind of balance the desire to, you know, want to learn more and to want to take the best care of our patients, but also do so in a way that is mindful and efficient about, you know, resources and cost and, you know, other considerations. And I think importantly, so to gather the data. Yep. I think we, we do need to collect these data. So you you think of maybe stratus, strata of, of, uh, of uh, observation um, I've been trying in my head to wrap around why do obese people tend to get sicker? Well, if you think about it, obesity is an inflammatory state, again, particularly in the abdominal fat. And if, if the COVID presentation, maybe the, the virus is gone, but the inflammation you know, um, cycle has begun and maybe it is worse in, in obese patients. So look at all the stuff that we could really we could really learn. So maybe one tier may be uh, more uh, a less invasive tier, uh, NT pro BNP, BNP, um, troponins if necessary. But I think troponins kind of spill late. But at least some sense, you get a normal biomarker when that patient comes in. 
then you can maybe repeat it in six months. And then there's the, the second tier where you want to get an echo. Um, and to me, it's not just echocardiography. I mean, we have picked up, you know, things like speckle tracking and, and torsion and very subtle abnormalities. Then you get the MRI if that's, if, if that's uh, abnormal. Um, so, Dr. Yassian, we need to ask you, what are you planning to do with a new century on this? Well, we have identified five services that aid us in surveillance testing uh, for COVID-19 to provide, clinic, to, to provide clinical oversight. These services are reviewed against a COVID policy developed from current literature, including an ACC scientific expert panel statement from 2020. Uh, and we're anxiously awaiting the, the data collection uh, on prevalence and quality so that we can further understand this disease and when when should when should we be uh, performing the surveillance testing and what to do about it? Yeah, Fernando, I, I will just say I, I think the work that that's been done by you know by, by your team and, and and New Century kind of more broadly is is exactly what needs to be done, which is to give providers some sense of a framework for what they need to do concordant with the evidence that's available. And yes, when there's uncertainty, of course, we're going to err on the side of doing more. But I think what you guys have done very well, and I think the clinical community really appreciates it, is to really give people some sense of, you know, where are we? What do we know? And based on that, What's a recommendation that we can make to our the clinical community about testing that needs to happen um, for, for patients that have COVID that have, you know, recovered? Um, you know, how, how do we sort of strike the right balance um, of that? And I, I think, you know, you, you guys deserve a lot of credit for, um, you know, for putting that type of document together. And, and, and I think we need to, frankly, see more of it. Um, but, but I think it's really important. I think that's a great point to end on, Dr. Desai, Dr. Pena. Thank you for joining me to, for today's discussion. To those listening don't, listening, don't forget to visit us at newcenturyhealth.com for more on this topic and for future episodes in this, in this series.